Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu. This is episode 277, Elizabeth Zimmerman and the Emergence of Critical Knitting, part six, which has to do with fan mail. You changed my life. My guest is Dr. Lily Marsh. She pursued original research on Elizabeth Zimmerman and earned her doctorate from Purdue University. We've been talking about what Elizabeth was doing, what avenues she was pursuing, and how she was developing the channels she had for communicating to her readers, listeners, and viewers. And in this episode, we're going to look at the other side of that conversation, the response of those knitters who are reading, watching, and knitting along with Elizabeth. Welcome, Dr. Lily. Good morning. Good morning. Before we get started with the responses and the mail that came flooding in, let's take some time to review the many ways that Elizabeth Zimmerman was amassing an audience. We've talked about her patterns appearing in magazines, articles that reveal her attitude about knitting, but in those articles, she was limited in terms of space and word count. And then the newsletters, which gradually evolved and expanded. But in our previous conversation, you alluded to the fact that she was making television appearances and that viewers could get their hands on a study guide to accompany TV episodes. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Elizabeth, uh, it's, it's important when you said she's expanding, I suddenly the image in my mind of sort of a period of a rock in a pond thrown, right? And those expanding circles. And that's clearly what's sort of happening for her, right? So she's running her newsletter. She's running her business. Her first audience is just her customers, just people she has their mailing address, basically, right? Then she starts to expand it. And that's when the big jump in fan mail starts. A fellow member of the Walrus Club, a uh, a TV personality, Beulah Donahue in Milwaukee, invites her on as a guest spot at, on her little morning show. And Elizabeth, you know, is on this this spot for 12 Tuesdays, one, one year in the fall and winter of 63, 64. And she does a little knitting thing. Um, and I don't have any records of what that was. I think she had like 10 minutes. That was it. It was not like a big show. It was like she had a little guest spot. Anyway, the, the television station is inundated with fan mail, right? And on the strength of that, she approaches the Milwaukee Educational TV group and poses them a television show. So by the fall of 1965, she's made her first television show. It's called The Busy Knitter. And it's 10 30-minute black and white episodes on a seamless raglan pullover or cardigan. So she does 10 episodes. In 1967, she does a second series, Busy Knitter 2, and it's 13, this 13 uh, 30 minute episodes, this time it's in color, and she does a Norwegian drop shouldered sweater. And then in 6970, she is writing the, her first book, Knitting Without Tears, and that's published in 71. This is that next tier of the puddle expanding, right? So she's doing television. Suddenly her audience is really much larger. And unfortunately, both of those series were lost in a PBS fire. But of course, in Easy's records, in the archives at Schoolhouse Press, there's all her notes and there's her, you know, her scripts and everything. And of course, then Knitting Without Tears has never been out of print. So that has stayed in print. 
just as an example of the reach of the show, she notes that the series has played over 200 times since their initial release and that they continue. And, and then she in, in the newsletter, she talks about, oh, if you're in Albuquerque, you know, if you're living in the Southwest, my television show is going to be on, you know, you can catch it on this station. It's starting these dates, you know, so she she's constantly talking in Wool Gathering about where her television show is. And they play well up into the early 80s. Um, with heaviest airtime in the Midwest and in the Northeast. But they also played in Florida, Alabama, Texas, Utah, Arizona, the Dakotas, California, Washington, Alaska, and Hawaii. There's a hilarious letter from a woman in Hawaii who's knitting ski sweaters. You know, she's got 10. She can't wait till her husband is reassigned to a Navy base up someplace where it's cold so they can wear them. <laughs> where, where she's buying wool in Hawaii for ski sweaters, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's, she's so excited. Yes. Anyway, her viewers were like super diverse, right? I mean, they just cover, you can tell from the letters that there's every kind of knitting ability, every, every class range, men and women are writing to her, children are writing to her. Some come on very formal letterhead. Some come on, you know, there's a couple that are very hard to read because they're written on that early childhood uh, newsprint with the the lines and dots, right? That, that where you practice your cursive. Um, there's a couple letters that are fascinating there that are written in pencil and they're so faint. You know, you have to you have to decipher them. But they wrote to her just you know like gangbusters because they were so excited. Um, they could also send to the station for a study guide. And Elizabeth provided a study guide to the station, um, and they were super popular. There's a letter from one of the TV station managers saying that he so misjudged the interest in the show that he had to reorder the study guides three times. So at one point, she describes what the series is like. And it's not clear whether she, whether both series were like this or whether this is only the second series that was like this. But she would talk about the project lesson for about 23 minutes. And then she would have two student knitters who would then be working on it. And she would sit with them and talk to them about, oh, you're having this problem. This is how you could do it. And sort of work through the knitting of the sweater with another person. And she purposefully made the series for the what she called the medium range knitter. She says, chiefly to the medium range knitter to show her the pleasure and adventure of constructing an original and quite personal sweater. So for knitting is above all a pleasant pastime, which should be enjoyed. So let us knit, she says. She closes the episode, you know, with saying, I think that when we are through, you will agree that there are a few problems that will not yield to a blend of common sense, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. That your knitting has been simple and pleasurable, and that you have achieved a handsome, comfortable sweater that will fit. And, and it's, you know, it's important to realize that she covers enormous ground in these sweater, in these 10, 10 and, and 13 weeks series. You know, all the little techniques that build a successful project that never get spoken of anywhere else. You know, how to recondition Ravel Jarn when you have to frog and you have all the little, you know, all the little shaping. How do you get rid of that so that you can knit? again, to, to gauge, you know, um, how to keep an increase line straight, how to button place buttonholes, just all the little things that go into making a, you know, a well-made sweater. She talked several times about how self-indulgent she feels about being able to just luxuriate in all the details of it, right? She says, I have greatly enjoyed myself making, making this series. I hope you have a little enjoyed watching 
Almost the greatest gratification has been the writing of these knitting notes, full of divagations and sidetrackings as they are. Knitting instruction writers lead a sad life, hemmed in on all sides by abbreviations, eliminations, compressions, and the need to use up as little space as possible. It has been a true pleasure to expand myself for once. So she's just, you know, she's really like wallowing in knitting <laughs> in these things. And, and it finds such a response. There are so many medium range knitters who are suddenly, you know, a little bit ready to, you know, like, I want to come up with my own design. I think I can do this a little better. I think this is a nice idea, but I want to do it slightly differently. And so, and so she's really speaking to that audience. Yeah. In 1971, Knitting Without Tears is published, and it seems like this book is a natural extension of a TV series. What are some of the consistent themes, and do you think that certain aspects of her knitting philosophy are emphasized because this is the medium? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question because because it's clear in the fan mail how different those two experiences are. That experience of watching television and that experience of reading a book, right? And it's important to remember in this day and age where we have a television in practically every room and you know we're all streaming binging television series on our personal laptops, right? It's important to remember that in this period there would have been one television in the house. It would have been in a central room where everybody gathered, right? This this was not a private activity watching, you know, unless you were absolutely alone in the house. It just wasn't a private activity. But the book is very much more experienced as a private activity. And in fact, experienced as an internal activity in terms of thinking about how you are creative, thinking about how you approach a product, uh, a project. Uh, and so, so it's really interesting to see the shift in the fan mail between the two responses. Um, in the book, it's, it's, it's very much written narratively style, and it is a, just a super pleasure to read. I would encourage anyone to buy this book and simply read it through as a novel, because she is both hilariously funny. You can see when you contrast it with anything written about knitting at the time. You know, what a personal passion this is for her. She stresses knitting as an autonomous activity, separate from, from anything else. You, you choose it freely or not, pursue it as a, as a set of exciting problems, solving exercises, and not as pattern following. Right in the beginning, in the first paragraph or two, she does this amazing rhetorical device, which I can't, you know, as, as a, a language person, I cannot speak about how strongly this device is an effective device. So she says, let nobody say she can't sew up a sweater. She just doesn't want to. Reminds me of the infuriating remark. I've always wanted to knit, but I just can't. Pish, my good woman. You can plan meals, can't you? You can put up your hair. You can type, write fairly legibly, shuffle cards. All of these things are more difficult than knitting. You just don't want to knit. So why pretend that you do? It's not compulsory. Take up something else. And this is, kind of, you know, it's, it's a silly thing to say out loud. But when you think about what she's doing here, she is, she is profoundly unhooking knitting from the idea of what it means to be a good woman. 
And this is a powerful motion that she's doing. And I'm reminded, you know, I started knitting as a young mom because it suddenly seemed to me that to be a good mother meant I had to make knitted baby things, right? That was my class and back family background. To be a good mom means you knit wonderful, fabulous little baby things. And that's how powerful that idea of knitting as an aspect of being a good woman, as part of the identity of being a woman. And here in this first thing, she says, it's not. If you don't like it, don't do it. But then she goes on. She says, but I love knitting and I'm going to obsess about it endlessly. <laughs> and so she, she like gives the reader permission to stop thinking about it one way and just admit you love it. You love it. You want to do it. You want to figure it out. You find this fascinating. And that's, that's such a power. I can't overemphasize what a powerful rhetorical statement that is in the, in the book. She encourages them to knit for themselves. She encourages them to make choices, to make their own designs. I love her statement. She says, I shall have failed in my endeavor if you copy my designs too slavishly. They are intended only as a guide, so be your own designer. No two people knit alike, look alike, think alike. Why should their projects be alike? Your sweater should be like your own favorite original recipes, like nobody else's on earth. And a good thing too. Mm. She's such a good teacher. This reminds me of the adage that, um, especially in writing, you know, a poor writing teacher will teach you to write like they write, and a good writing teacher will teach you to write like you write. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly right. You know, she is constantly in the position of someone who's sharing information, not directing activity. She's constantly in that position. And that goes back to the idea of, of identity making as a form of dialogue, as a form of sharing the self and listening to the other self. Right. And that's that's, you know, so much and so much of Knitting Without Tears is written directly in that sort of first person voice. You know, I'm doing this. What do you think? You know, she's continually, it's, it's written as a conversation with, with an intimate friend who's just as passionate about knitting as she is. You talked about, you know, kind of like letting that first person and that narrative device sort of lets the reader in on her internal monologue, what she's thinking yeah, to herself. Yeah, yeah. And she does that through design problems that she's trying to solve. She does that through talking through how to do a steaking. I love her direction for steaking, right? She says, uh, oh, I didn't write this down, so it won't be a perfect quote. But she says, uh, you know, she gives the directions. And then she says, and when you've cut it, go and lay down in a darkened room with a, with a cold towel over your forehead and you'll be fine. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> She says, you'll never be scared to do it again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fan mail. But before we start talking about it, let's talk in broad terms about how you were able to access it and your experience in the archives. You've mentioned being in the archives a couple of times. How was the fan mail collected, stored and presented? And what was your method in reviewing it? And how much time did you spend with fan mail? Well, the uh, so Schoolhouse Press is in the incredibly enviable position of 
being basically a family attic for Elizabeth's materials because Meg still lives in Elizabeth's house and the schoolhouse press is still run out of the same building. So while some stuff, a lot of stuff has been boxed up and set aside, almost nothing has been thrown away, but it's sort of scattered all over the place. So I made three major trips to Schoolhouse Press, and then a couple of minor ones where I was only there for a day or two. There were three trips where I was there for over a week, uh, would spend all day, 10 hours a day, sitting. Meg gave me her desk, uh, cleared off her workspace, and let me just have her de- her office to work in for those trips. She would find stuff. This happened for the entire, all the years that I was doing this research. So a lot of the stuff was made into scrapbooks by Elizabeth. So there were about 17 or 18 scrapbooks that Elizabeth made in her lifetime that collected pieces of fan mail, that collected articles, that collected design publications, or like that quote of Elizabeth's when she read uh, Emily Carr's book, Hundred and Thousands. That was in one of the scrapbooks where she copied that out and she put that in her scrapbook. And what was really funny was at first there were only like 11 or 12, and then Meg kept finding more. I got the impression that as I talked to Meg, she would go back home and she would root around in closets and hallways and attics and find more stuff that, you know, oh, this got put away when we cleaned this room out for somebody else. You know, here's all the stuff. Um, So there ended up being about 17 or 18 of those scrapbooks. Some of the stuff was not in those scrapbooks. There were folders and binders of stuff that weren't cut up. This way of doing things was incredibly rich for me because it pointed me in the direction like she would mention a friend who had published a book. So that pointed me in the direction of a book I'd never heard of, right? It, so it, those, these, those were super rich in like feeling out what was the, what was the contemporary atmosphere around knitting, Right. And, and she would put in things there that she didn't like. Right. So she would she would say, well, that you know, this book wasn't so great. <laughs> so, or somebody would say, I bought this book. and I thought it was going to be exciting. It wasn't that great. But it gave me a title to go look up and see, OK, what were the op- opposing viewpoints on knitting at the time? My research there very much had the feel of this like rummaging around in a completely disorganized attic. And in talking to my talking to my professors, of course, academics, when you're citing something, they want, they're used to working in archives that are, you know, in manila folders in a, in a file at an, at a professional archive. And so you cite the file number and the pay, you know, um, there wasn't any of that. (laughs) I ended up having to cite things like in the yellow scrapbook (laughs) with this on the opening page, this, you know, thing written, it would might be a quote, you know, but that's what I'm going to call this scrapbook. It's the first thing you see when you open the page. My first trip there ended up being my least valuable trip because I was trying to take notes. By the second trip, I had a smartphone and a camera and I could just photograph every document. And that made it super fast to get through just stacks of paper, stacks of unknown items that I didn't know what the value of it was going to be, but I could photograph it and save it. And and then sometimes on these letters, she would like cut off the address if she was trying to fit it into a small space in her grant, you know, or she would cut off the name or it would be just a scrap of of a letter that sounded like, wow, I wish I knew more of the backstory of that. You know, (laughs) it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating work. You explained that there are a few threads or themes that can be traced through the fan mail. 
disruption and transformation. I think this is the same kind of academic shorthand you mentioned in part five when you explained liberated domesticity and democratic craftsmanship and said that they were your terms, not hers, and that you use them for making your academic argument. Can you share some examples to help us understand what you mean by disruption and transformation? Sure, sure. So disruption and transformation go back to that earlier discussion we had on cultural reproduction and cultural production. That thing that we do in every moment of our lives, right? We are making choices around, do we want to do something the same way? Do we want to do something a new way, right? Um, and so change happens to all of us, right? I mean, just the idea of, you know, you got pregnant, you had a baby, you changed jobs, you moved, you woke up one morning and you know, discover, realize something about your partner. You know, change happens in the course of daily life. How we choose to meet that change is the process of cultural production or reproduction, right? And so the first thing that happens in that work is change. That's disruption, right? So people are are met with a thing that they need to make a decision about. And you see this in the fan mail all the time. Her way of talking about knitting, the television show, the book is a disruption. And then the way they the way they meet that disruption can either retain the way they previously thought or it can transform the way they previously thought. Right. So that's the term of disruption and transformation. One of the first forms of disruption is happens in family schedules around around the television show. Right. Because, again, single single television show. It's on at a certain time. It's not like you can save it. You watch it or you don't or you miss it. Right. It's, it's funny, isn't it, to think about how different that is. <laughs> there was no binge watching. You actually had to wait a week. <laughs> But it's so funny that over and over, the time of the television show forces the, the viewer to, to realize how important it is that I watch this. It is important. So the first letter, I love this, of February 1969, a woman writes in about how much this show was important to her. I wouldn't miss it for anything. In fact, my poor patient husband has to wait for his supper on Tuesday nights so I can watch you from 6 to 6.30. He was stunned at first that I watched you so faithfully as he said, what could you possibly learn about knitting? You've been an expert for years. Well, it's true that I might be what's called an expert knitter and that I've sold many of my children's sweater designs. But you know as well as I do that there are always new tricks to learn and new ways of doing things in the knitting line. So congratulations on your series. Your program is answering a real need in the knitting world. That's a Mrs. Roy C. Barker. And the idea that she is, you know, shooing her husband off the dining room table. You, got, I'm watching this. I'm watching this. And you can just wait. I think that that's, it's one of those tiny, small things that when you, that happens in the granularity, the tiniest detail of ordinary life, that when you draw back from it, you realize this is kind of a big deal. She's reshaping her family life in order to watch this program. There's another letter that, that talks about later schedule, scheduling causing a problem. A woman writes, 
a Mrs. Bird de Hinton writes in 1969, this letter is intended as fan, fan mail to say that a whole neighborhood of busy knitters enjoy creating and learning with Elizabeth Zimmerman being channel 11. But why, oh, why did the program get scheduled for 11.30 p.m.? This is an impossible hour for most of us who are busy mothers on the 7.30 to 10.30 p.m. shift. We've tried taking turns night owling, but we are all left with partially completed sweaters and gaps in instructions and understanding for finishing them. And the idea that there's this whole group of women, how did they even find the program, for heaven's sakes? You know, they must be reading the the television digest you know what was it tv guide that's what it used to be called right Right. yeah um and and they're trying to stay up and and watch this disrupting their whole lives you know they're tired the next day they're you know it's so it's just just this wonderful um you see both the disruption and you see the elasticity that these women are insisting on, that these knitters, I need to stop saying women as mm. ultra knitters, but that these knitters are insisting in their daily life and in their dis- domestic arrangements in order to accommodate this. So you see both the disruption and you're starting to see transformation. There's lovely letters about intergenerational disruption and transformation. So there's a lovely letter from a non-knitting daughter who struggles with an extremely competent knitting mother. (laughs) I love this letter. The Schwink letter from South Dakota writes about overcoming a lifelong mental inability to learn to knit stemming from the condition of my being left-handed and having an extremely competent and efficient right-handed mother who taught everyone in town except her her own left-handed daughter to knit. And who is now knitting at speed. She's finished two seamless sweaters for the end of the 10-week series and seven pairs of socks as filling in the time between lessons. And she plans a Mother's Day cardigan for her mom and is considering writing a book for left-handed knitters. So you see, you know, it's, it's a woman who is taking off. She is taking off and finding this thing that I found difficult. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. I love it. And I'm changing everything about the way I think about it. You see another one. This is one of my very favorite letters. I keep saying that about the letters, but I I picked the best ones for for you guys. We're so lucky. (laughs) So this one I just love. This is a Margaret Boardman letter. Um, And she had learned to knit from a great grandmother who did not use patterns. So she was a very old style knitter, Um, but she didn't really pass that skill on. And though everybody else in the family knit, they were strictly pattern followers, she says. And she writes, it gives me a rather perverse pleasure to have my grandmother admire something I've made and ask for the pattern. And I have to sit down and write it out for her because there is no written pattern. I guess it's not all that bad. It also pleases my grandmother. So you have this sense of like even rejoining an older tradition within the family and the younger person teaching the older person again. That's, you know, that can be a major transruption in a family. The Susan Waldman letter, I just love also about a knitter who becomes so much more productive. She said, knitting was never really fun because it seemed to take so long and it was tedious. I never strayed from the printed instruction, but your program opened a whole new world for me. You showed us how to think and not be afraid of using imagination. Now, when I use a pattern, I use it only as a suggestion and not as an absolute. Many times while reading instructions, I find myself saying, that's silly. Mrs. Zimmerman wouldn't do that. 
Sure enough, using what you taught me, I do reason a better way. I like your common sense approach to the whole idea of nunning. Do you know what endeared you to my heart when you said to use simple safety pins as markers? When I saw that, I thought, well, for once an instructor that doesn't keep you running to the store for more gadgets. She says, to me, there's another line. I I almost forgot this. To me, you are the Julia child of knitting. I love that. That's what I was thinking as I read your dissertation. Yeah. That's what yeah. I compared it to because I I didn't grow up knowing about Elizabeth Zimmerman, but I did grow up having an understanding of Julia Child and what she did when she took cooking to television. Yeah. When she made a mess, dropped things on the floor. You can, you know, if I can do it, you yeah. can do it, or you can do better at home, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I love there's a clip, a famous clip of her flipping an omelet and it only halfway making it into the pan. <laughs> Let's just we'll t- tidy that up. <laughs> It'll look good on the plate. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's very much the same thing. This is it, as a knitter. I tend to think of this as the whole world, right? Um, but it, this is a movement that's happening across women's lives. You know, this idea we can do new things. We can keep some of the old things, cooking and knitting and sewing and whatever we would like to keep but we can do them in new ways and we can do them with new ideas about how to think about we're doing what we're doing. Um, and this is, you know, it's fascinating to see this happening in these small ways in very individual lives, this, this increasing, you know, that term of elasticity in your understanding of domesticity, you know, you can see women just like, oh, you know, pushing and pulling at this and thinking, how can I make this work? How can I do this thing, which I decide that I really love in the midst of all the other things I do? When readers and viewers take the time and the energy to write in, what they mention is what is most powerful or strikes a chord. What are some of the other aspects of Elizabeth Zimmerman's influence that became evident in the fan mail? There is one of the things that's really interesting here is is that a lot of the fan mail, and again, think of this as the 60s, the the middle and late 60s, the early 70s. A lot of the fan mail starts to pick up on feminist language uh, and they're talking about knitting and they're talking about the way they think. And so there are two letters, um, the Helen Snyder letter um, and Elizabeth is praised for her quote, the non-patronizing level of guidance and the assumption of a raised knitting consciousness, which is flattering. My motto is recipes are for cowards. And this covers, carries over into other endeavors. Wool gatherings provide the perfect degree of freedom of choice. And this idea of the raised knitting consciousness, that's such a feminist term of the late 60s and 70s. Another one happens when there's an anonymous letter, um, and I've got my note that this is in fan mail number six scrapbook. This is how I had to cite things. The number six fan mail scrapbook. (laughs) Your books are like an assertiveness training class in knitting. I get less timid with each article I knit. And so if you're old enough, you remember that assertiveness training classes were a big deal in the 70s among women who were really grappling with feminism, with the idea of leaving behind the idea of the docile woman and moving into a woman that could make her own choices. You know, you start to catch this language in the letters. And it was always fascinating 
It's mm-hmm. always fascinating. One of my very favorite letters is by uh, a Mrs. Bud Henry um, in 1968. And this is one that is perhaps dear to me because I grew up in a very rural area and uh, was very aware of the rural city divide. And we experience that, of course, a great deal now in the current political environment. But it's important to remember that this was not quite the same divide, that it was very much a social class divide at that time, rather than a political one. Um, and that this is this is about real serious movement around social boundaries. So she, she starts to retell this story in her letter. She's a, a very busy dairy farmer um, who's been following the show and she's very sorry to see it ending. Um, but she takes a trip to a nearby city, she says. Um, and it's clear in the letter that she doesn't drive. This got to remember, this is an age when women didn't necessarily drive. Um, and so her husband takes her to the yarn shop, right? And she says, I thought maybe city women didn't care for that kind of show. But much to my surprise, I discovered that's just not so. As I was buying some yarn, a very well-dressed lady standing near me said how lovely the new colors were. And as things go, we talked. And she said she was watching you on TV and just loved it. Before you could shoo the cat out of the cream jar, three more ladies stopped to talk. I never saw any of these women before, but there we stood, talking like old friends about your knitting class. It's such a small thing, but again, it's the very granular action of disruption and transformation. That suddenly knitting is a perfectly reasonable thing to cross pretty serious social boundaries with. You know, you can imagine, you know, she probably wasn't super well-dressed. You know, she was a dairy farmer. She she didn't live in a town that had nice clothes. Maybe she may have made things. Maybe she was wearing homemade things. Who knows? But she, she makes a point of saying these women were very well-dressed. And yet we stood there and we talked about your class. I, I just find that an amazing, amazing, um, amazingly ordinary, but at the same time, when you look at it as what would transformation look like, this, this is what it would look like in an ordinary person's life. So lots of little, little things happening. Yeah, little tiny things, little tiny grains of sand starting to move. So as we talked about, the television series and the books had different methods of delivery, different ways of consuming the information. And so they produced different sorts of fan mail, uh, reflecting deeper and more deeply personal disruption and transformation in terms of reading the books. Tell us about some of the letters that stood out to you and why you find them significant. It's clear that the television series is, is experienced socially. A lot of the fan mail talks about how they interacted with other people around what they were discovering. But the book fan mail produces a much more interior process. And, and when you think about the difference between reading a book silently to yourself, maybe with knitting needles on your lap, that that's it. that is a much more interior process. Um, and so people wrote at greater length often about their thoughts about the book. The problem solving sort of inviting the reader into an interior mental space of innovation and practice. And that that sense of disruption and reimagining of their identity becomes far more personal, right? Far more intimate. 
and and perhaps in the face of some serious social resistance, right? There were a lot of letters about this. I picked a few of them. There's a Deborah Curry letter, and I kind of suspect that this is the NBC newscaster, Deborah Curry, who was on the on the Today Show for so long because she was famous as a knitter. But she writes to Elizabeth, and she t- tells the story of this realization that she came to. It's quite a lengthy letter. She says, while knitting and watching a 1993 documentary about the Kennedy assassination, in which they use that well-known line that everyone remembers exactly where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. She says in the letter, it occurs to me, I will never forget the moment I discovered Elizabeth Zimmerman's Knitter's Almanac at an Eastside NYC bookstore in the 80s. She says, this is a quote, I was charmed by your delightful prose and common sense and remember feeling as if I'd been let in on a terrific secret. I clutched the book to my chest and raced home where I devoured every word. I returned the next day to buy knitting workshop and knitting without tears and felt like the beneficiary of a treasure trove as I hurried home to read them. I learned to knit at my mother's knee, but it wasn't until I discovered you that I was set free as a knitter. I want to thank you, Elizabeth, for your, your infinite wisdom, intelligence, talent and charm and for sharing it with all of us Mm. and this sense that my gosh this is a professional woman this is a professional woman and she is transformed somehow something so significant about this right there's another series of letters um the hattendorf baldridge series of letters in which an aunt and a niece get in a custody battle about the book right because i think that that if I if I get it, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, the niece buys the book and shares it with her aunt. And the aunt won't give it back, <laughs> like keeps it for like 18 months before she gets her own copy of the book. They both write to Elizabeth. At one point, one is quoting the other to Elizabeth. So it becomes this like three-way conversation. It's just hilarious. She says, thank you for putting me wise to the source of inspiration that easy has been. And I'm sure will continue be, to be. I'm able not not only to create my own design ideas of design and style, I recently made a sweater for my 13-year-old granddaughter. Using the seamless directions, I made a cardigan and just five-row patterned stripes in it. And two of the stripes, I used her name, Della Della. She's crazy about it. Now Joan wants one with the same idea. First of all, the interaction between the niece and the aunt is just hysterical. But the idea that you could put your name in the sweater. This we've talked before on previous episodes about the the generation of identity and the making visible of the knitter or of the body that's wearing that specific sweater. There's nothing more powerful than putting your name on something. This is mine. This is who I am. And it's so clear it's been made. Yes. And it was made for me. Yeah. Yeah. You can see how powerful that would be for a child. You can see how powerful that would be for any of us, especially if that's a fairly new idea that this could be made for you. There's another letter in July of 72, uh, Mrs. Wayland writes, um, and she's encouraging uh, Elizabeth to write a second book. And she speaks directly to Elizabeth about this generation of a new kind of knitter. She says, To my mind, you are a knitter's knitter. A knitter, in capital letters, is completely devoted to yarn and needles, has little time for other hobbies, sees knitting in every design, and doesn't hesitate to experiment. And I might add, has very little impatience with pattern books. You are a breath of fresh air after so many years of the blah knitting books. 
So you have, you know, there you have someone responding to or, or sort of creating another vision of the woman who doesn't knit because she thinks she's supposed to. She knits because she's obsessed with it. She loves it. So it's almost this, this paired vision from that first quote of Elizabeth when she's when she's writing in Knitting Without Tears about, you don't have to knit if you don't want to, but I'm obsessed with knitting. Let's talk about it. And, and here you have the, the responding half of that in a sense. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the transformation goes even farther. And you can see so many people who are going on and on about how they changed from a beginner to a professional. Now I'm selling designs or people who were professional who were ex- expert at what they do, suddenly transforming all their ideas about thinking. So there's a very long letter, uh, a series of three letters. This was very fun when, when I could find multiple letters, a, a correspondence that began to tell a whole story. So Teresa Inverso, who some of you may know, remember her name, there's a set of 1993 documents from Inverso to Meg Swanson, who's, of course, Elizabeth's daughter, uh, and a copy uh, that Inverso included of an essay she wrote for Amy Yanagi, who was then editor of Threads Magazine, the New York City-based Tantan Press uh, Threads Magazine. And, uh, and she writes to Meg that Yanagi had been puzzled. So Amy Yanagi, so Threads Magazine editor, writing to Inverso, uh, and that Amy had been puzzled about knitting and she she questions Inverso about does anybody really wear mittens and she, and Inverso is saying then to Meg I was able to tell her the whole Midwest wears mittens New York doesn't know that and then she asks why I knit was it process or product anyway I've been thinking a lot about that question since she proposed it and I feel like writing an essay why I knit like a high school assignment but in thinking about it do you want to know what the short answer is if anyone asks me now why do you knit? I'd be ready with this brief reply because of Elizabeth. I'll bet there are 99 out of a hundred other knitters who could answer in the same words. And then she includes the essay, right? So the essay that she wrote for Amy Yanagi is there. And she narrates this transformation, describing herself as a very accomplished professional sewing expert who learned to knit from her mother, but didn't do it as much. She kind of preferred crocheting Afghans and sewing patchwork. You know, in fact, you know, she couldn't imagine wanting to knit in lieu of sewing. Um, But as an adult, she finds a copy of Knit Without Tears at a library book sale. I read it as if it were a novel. I couldn't put it down. I felt as if I were being propelled into knitting and I wanted to understand everything Elizabeth was talking about in that book. And so she reads as much of Easy's work as possible and it's profoundly shifting her relationship to knitting. She says, now when I knit with wool, I feel connected to a tradition and to others who are knitting and who have knit over the centuries. I am intensely interested in the history of knitting and in knitting of other cultures as a result. Above all, Elizabeth teaches the knitter to think, to analyze, to change the printed pattern, even her own. And she closes this with this really lovely statement. Is it process or product? I like having warm feet in winter, wearing socks that I designed and knit. But I don't think the two can be separated. A lot of knitting is what Elizabeth calls donkey work, and she suggests a remedy for that, knit and read at the same time. The donkey work is also a good time to knit and breathe. And before you know it, knitting becomes breathing, breathing, knitting. Do I still crochet? No. Do I still sew patchwork? A little. I knit whenever I can, and even when I should be doing other things. Knitting is my first love, thanks to Elizabeth. So here you have this woman who's a professional fiber person transforming her relationship to this craft 
because of the way Elizabeth talked about knitting. That's profound. When you think of someone who has decades of skill, decades of practice, able to completely shift what the way she thinks and does her work around this. That the experience of reading a book can be life-changing is a pretty big claim. But you have found evidence that EZ's inspiration was powerful enough even to influence life's course and a person's way of seeing the world. And we're going to close with some very powerful examples and your thoughts about them. Yeah, it's, again, some of these letters can seem so ordinary until you draw back and and try to look at the bigger picture, right? Look at, if this is a granular example of something, what's the big piece of it? What's it fitting into? Or if this is the big thing, what would a granular example of this look like, right? So, so that's what was so fun about the letters is, is making that connection between what sounds like ordinary, oh, I was talking to these ladies in the yard shop. It was fun. Um, and, and what is it Really? What is it really in the big picture of culture? So one of the things you get is this huge bleed between creative knitting, Elizabeth's style of knitting, and the idea of personal agency, that I get to make choices. I have choices. They are mine to make. Um, This Linda Carlson letter in January of 76 And again, 76, you know what? Title IX didn't come into full force until 78. Colleges didn't have to let women apply at this period. It's it's hard to remember, particularly for younger people, how incredibly different life was in the early 70s. Linda Carlson's letter in January 76 says, This letter comes as thanks for your inspiration to a dormant attitude of mine that I, and not a pattern book, should direct the outcome of my knitting. I was taught to knit before I was taught to read or write, and children who knit, as in all things, must follow directions. Carrying this subservience over into adulthood, one continues to follow the pattern books through typographical errors, misprints, all sorts of ill-conceived ideas, lest the garment self-destruct out of spite. I'm having much more fun now. This letter feels, when you read it, like a woman who's waking up. Uh, That's a a very powerful letter for me. Uh, Mrs. James Ritchie writes a letter. Her letter is very interesting because she's a woman who has transformed her life in lots of ways. So she writes in 72. um, She talks about being a lifelong knitter, retired from an active New York City business life, and moves to the Midwest and a life more based in what was for dinner that night. Um, So you can tell this is for this woman, you know, she's maybe struggling a little bit, Um, but she discovers her easy and, and she writes about how profoundly it helped with her retirement transition, uh, particularly amidst a traditional Midwestern family of knitters, right? She says, conformity seems to be the rule, namely follow the pattern precisely, never invent, never be imaginative, never, never dare to design one's own. I seem to have surprised, shocked my local relatives with my courage in adapting and inventing my own patterns. And I think she goes on in the letter to say, I may start a business. I may put them to work for me. But Arnold had a uh, BMW motorcycle that he just loved. Uh, And he and Elizabeth would go motorcycle riding together. 
she would write on the back and he had to keep insisting she stopped knitting back there because 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 he could feel that she was she was knitting and she wasn't leaning into the curves the way she should be so that was a that's a big thing in the elizabeth literature about in fact i think they even staged for some kind of an advertisement i'm not i don't remember now quite what it was but they staged where a cop stops her for knitting while motorcycling on the back right and so she would talk about that like she like when they were going on long drives that she would pull out these little socks four double pointed needles for heaven's sakes <laughs> this was before magic loop now uh, this must be what arnold could feel is these double pointed needles sticking him in the back and so but she would knit knit socks while she was <laughs> while she was riding the motorcycle Anyway, one of the letters talks about this, that like like uh, Arnold and Elizabeth, this woman and her husband were, were long distance. She says, we belong to the Honda Goldwing Club and enjoy taking trips. Anyhow, I encountered some opposition from friends and family about getting on one of those things at my age. I now show them your comments about knitting while riding, and that shut them up. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, Elizabeth does it. <laughs> Elizabeth does it and knitting. At the same time, <laughs> can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. There's a hilarious story. I love the stories that Elizabeth tells about Arnold. So she, you know, and she draws very, very, just they're very different personalities. Um, one of the funniest stories is is that they would often go on these motorcycle rides and meet people like at a certain restaurant. We're supposed to meet at four o'clock or something. And at one point, she tells the story of Arnold was was just hated it when people were late. Just hated it and so she could see that as the time got near that he would start saying things well like in 15 minutes they're going to be late if they're not you know and and he would say it that way if they aren't here in 15 minutes they'll be late like like you know being not 15 minutes early was the problem <laughs> but I, I love her little stories about their home life in, in there it's just they're very funny very funny he should have had his knitting yeah yeah <laughs> keep yourself busy buddy <laughs> She tells at one point she talks about how Arnold was expert. He did not knit, but boy, could he proofread her directions and he would read the newsletters over and point out, well, wait, if you're doing this here, you didn't talk about doing that over here. Or you can't do this if you haven't done this other thing first. You have to make sure you get these in the right order. And he, that he was he was a big help in getting the newsletters proofread and making sure that everything was in there that needed to be in for those designs. Wow, that German precision. Yeah, yeah, he he had it, yeah. Yeah. To go back, this idea um, of movement towards professional craftsmanship. A lot of these people who were suddenly, you know, realizing, I really like this way of knitting, and I can be good at this. Maybe I should write a book. Maybe I should do the thing. Um, Brenda Lewis writes a letter um, and, and, and talks about write, finding a copy of Knitting Without Tears in the library. She says, I learned a lot about knitting from it, but what I liked best was that it was encouraging and it helps me to enjoy knitting. Thanks to you, I'm now a freelance designer and have sold over 50 designs. You have been the greatest influence in my life and I feel it is due to you that I am so happy and doing what I always dreamed of doing. Wow. Yeah, this very powerful. And of course, there were tons of these people in um, the 80s and 90s who had been students of Elizabeth in some way. Either they attended knitting camp for a number of years or they um, 
or they read the books, they corresponded with her. Um, two of the most uh, prominent or, were Jackie Fee, who wrote The Sweater Workshop, which is a, a book that's well worth digging out and, and finding even now. Um, and Priscilla Gibson Roberts, who wrote uh, Knitting in the Old Way, uh, and in fact had a very extensive correspondence with Elizabeth. The best statement that I have found, or, or at least my very favorite statement, is uh, is Ryan Knitter, um, who will, whose people will name will know the yarn harlot, right? Stephanie Pearl McPhee, um, who was a, again a major influence on a, herself on a lot of people, writing about knitting as a form of her life, not you know, not as necessarily. Um, a hobby, but as the thing that shaped her life. She talks about the power of Easy's work in generating the knitter's recognition of herself, the recognition of her passion, and of that growing sense that there were other knitters, that this was a dialogic response, that the viewer and the reader and the listener is generating a sense of identity and generating community, communal cohesion. In 2010, she writes an essay about the influence of Elizabeth on her life. When she writes, she's invited by Meg Swanson to write the introduction to the anniversary edition of The Knitter's Almanac, because The Knitter's Almanac was the first easy book that that Stephanie Pearl McPhee read. One of the first things that Stephanie does is she talks about Elizabeth's influence on her and on her as a child, uh, as a very young child. So Stephanie writes about knitting um, as a six-year-old, that she had already loved knitting and was super passionate about it. And kind of realizing that nobody else really feels about knitting the same way I do. I know a lot of people who knit and they don't seem to feel as strongly about it as I do. I feel very strongly about it. She says, this was the case for about 10 years where I knit enough that it was sometimes thought of as that thing that was odd about me and that nobody else really did. I learned pretty fast that if I let go with some of the fine thinking and feeling about knitting that I'd been doing, my audience dried up pretty fast. And then she goes on, she describes herself as this very nerdy, awkward child. You know, she she remarks at one point that even when I was wearing wearing a dress, a lot of people mistook me for a boy. She says, I decided to keep my knitting to myself for a while. I didn't need another way not to fit in. And spreading it around school that I was the kind of kid who liked knitting more than boys was really not going to help me get any more cool. But at age 16, she finds her first easy book. She finds Knitter's Almanac. By the second page, I had been entirely stupefied. I hadn't read a pattern, hadn't learned a single thing. All the wonderful ideas, tips, percentages, and all the cleverness had not even been revealed to me, but I would have followed Elizabeth anywhere. It was right there in black and white. She wrote, I can knit. I knit all year, day in and day out. It's my passion. And with those few words, I felt an echo in me, awestruck, finding something I'd never found before. It was recognition. I was a skinny, weird, bookish Canadian teenager who knit all the time. And there I was feeling better about myself because I had finally found another person on earth who seemed to feel as I did. That she was a British-born American grandmother who I'd never met was completely irrelevant. She'd said things I'd thought but didn't say, things like knitting made me feel clever, that solving knitting problems was like solving real problems, that it was challenging, exciting, fun, engaging, even funny. It was clear that Elizabeth wasn't going through a strange knitting phase. This is just what she happened to be interested in. 
and that it was working out for her. I closed the book and reopened it, this time at a random page, and discovered her in a quandary about a mitten. I just about wept. I had mitten quandaries all the time. I took the rest of the evening with that book and felt more encouraged and less weird with every minute. There were two of us. This is, and to me, that's just such a powerful statement. You know, we talk about all the time in terms of race that representation is important. And this is what that is. This is the saying, oh, my God, there are two of us. I am not alone. This is such a powerful thing. She goes on through multiple copies of the book. She talks at great length about how many copies of Knitting Without Tears and Knitter's Almanac she's, she's worn out, given to friends, had stolen by her friends and daughters. I know for a fact that at least 10 copies of this book were destroyed, lost, used up, wandered off, or just outright given to knitters who looked like they could use them. And it wasn't about the knitting patterns. The patterns were then and remain now darn good patterns. And we made plenty of them for sure. But my own love of knitting and my belief that it was clever and worthy was reflected in those pages. Knitting is so much more than it, than it appears. She taught me it was okay to think about knitting as much as I did, to like knitting as much as I did, and that knitting was a worthy pursuit of a nimble mind. She reflected a life in which knitting had a starring role, and it gave me the confidence to allow my passion to be reflected in my own choices. And there's, there's, to me, there's almost no bigger statement that can be made about the idea of, of grasping your life in your hands and making choices. And then she talks about how much she used Elizabeth's work and its huge, you know, its huge following uh, as a way to convince publishers when she started to approach them about her own books. So if you remember the Yarn Harlot's career, she did a blog for a number of years, and then she starts to gather those blog books in the books. And she writes about when she was approaching these publishers, um, they wondered if such a book could sell. She says, when publishers wondered if such a book could sell, and she's talking about her books, pitching the idea of a useless knitting book that had no instruction and talked about the gripping, fast-paced, and intelligent nature of knitting by way of humorous essays and jokes. This proved difficult to get by a publisher. When publishers wondered if such a book could sell, it was the popularity of Elizabeth's work that was frequently cited as proof of how much knitters cared and how much knitting talk they wanted beyond patterns, how much they wanted to hear about it, talk about it, think about it and have it recognized that it wasn't just something they were doing to kill time while they waited for their lives to happen, but an active, interesting facet of their actual lives. There are, we explained, people who knit. And then there are knitters. And the latter is what we are speaking of. And all the evidence you need that they exist and buy things is Elizabeth Zimmerman. This idea that knitting was a new thing. It wasn't just this thing that happened in the corners of your life to kill time. She says, change never happens without catalyst and confidence. And the way Elizabeth put forth her simple assertions that knitters were clever, that we could think our way through anything, and that knitting was a deep and fascinating good time worthy of our attention, clearly helped bring the knitting community into focus. For many of us, the first time we opened her book, read her words, and realized we weren't alone in our thinking turned out to be more true than we ever imagined. There were way more than two of us. This idea of the community that, that is growing, that we are recognizing in each other something crucial 
something that goes beyond many of the things that divide us. Now, of course, it's it's important to realize, you know, the knitting community is as riven by division as any other. But the idea that knitting might be worth getting over some of those divisions, right? We just talked about representation. And of course, right now, there's so much conversation about the need to recognize that all knitters are not white, that there, that there can be many varieties of knitters, right? And that those distinctions are valuable and important. Knitting is not separate from the world. Knitting is deeply embedded in the world for most of us, right? And so we bring to it our change. But the idea that knitting might be something that we can gather around is, is I, I think, a crucial idea. I love the way that Stephanie ends this essay. Of course, Stephanie's a great writer. She's a great writer. And she talks about when Elizabeth died, you know, she realized just how profoundly uh, that she had changed things. And Elizabeth... When she died, she got an obit in the New York Times, which I just find amazing, right? They, off their own bat, as far as I know, wrote an obit. It's quite an extensive one. It has, in the obituary, it has a, a picture of the diagram that she did for the original 1955 Norwegian ski sweater that shows her percentage system. I was filled with regret that I had never met or corresponded with her and was sad that I wouldn't have her anymore. And I realized I was really going to miss her. I was going to miss a woman I had never met. My feelings were echoed by thousands of knitters. Since her death, I've come to do what I do, writing about knitters and what they do. And as I do it, I travel a great deal and meet a tremendous number of knitters. And the same thing happens over and over. What are they knitting? Mitered mittens a baby surprise jacket, a February sweater, a pie shawl, countless sweaters of their own devising, all sprung from Elizabeth's percentage system, every stitch of them as current and relevant as ever. And while I'm admiring their work, it starts to get harder to miss her. Elizabeth is still here between these covers, in these words, in the admonishment to trust your own canny intelligence, and not a single word seems dated, naive, or behind the times. She is also right where she would want to be, I think which is turning up on the needles of thousands and thousands of knitters as though some small part of her comes back to visit over and over and over again. We all understand each other in Elizabeth's house. Knit on. This is something that we're gonna, we're gonna talk about in the next episode. This makes actually a great segue into the next episode because what we're gonna talk about in the, in the next essay is how this small granular movement that we see in the fan mail and we see in these essays starts to institutionalize itself, starts to become something that will live beyond her. We're going to talk about how the magazines, how groups of these people get together and start talking about these ideas of knitting is worthy of our attention. Knitting is a clever thing to do. It requires you to be thinking. It requires you to own your choices. It requires you to have certain agency in what you're doing. And so these ideas of Elizabeth are suddenly way beyond the lifetime of a single person and can achieve really just amazing levels of change. And that happens, they talk about in cultural production or reproduction, that happens when a single person's ideas becomes a group's ideas. And then when those ideas take some kind of shape that can live beyond the individual lives of that group. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of those those beautiful letters. As you were reading parts of them, I was imagining you 
turning through these scrapbooks and seeing them typed, handwritten on all different kinds of paper and letterhead and from all the different sorts of people who are sending them in. It, it was truly an amazing experience. It was truly an amazing experience. Uh, but this is the beginning of that change of, of this group of people discovering, yeah, I like it that much. Yeah, I like it that much. Thank you. I'll see you next time. The experience of reading a book can be life-changing, and that's a pretty big claim, but you have found evidence that Elizabeth Zimmerman's inspiration was powerful. <laughs> I know, I know. Have a drink of water. <laughs> I, need a, I need a sip of coffee. <laughs> I have drank my ration this morning mm. of coffee.